You're listening to the teaching of Calvary Paris. For more information, go to www.calvaryparis.com. I'm here today to tell you that a great relationship with Jesus Christ starts out by a simple decision to trust in Him for salvation. And from that smallest and simplest of decisions can come the greatest and the strongest connections of faith. That is what we see being offered today to the disciples of Jesus Christ in the form of a simple meal, the Passover supper, the bread, the cup, Jesus offering to his followers a simple means of drawing close to him and establishing a connection that has obviously lasted for centuries. We pick up our text in Mark chapter 12 and verse 12, reading that on the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover lamb, remember that Jesus Christ is that representation of God's Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where do you want us to go and prepare that you may eat the Passover? And he sent out two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. Wherever he goes in, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where's the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Verse 15, then he will show you a large upper room furnished and prepared. There, make ready for us. And so his disciples went out and came into the city and found it just as he had said to them, and they prepared the Passover. Let's pause here for a moment. First of all, I'd like to point out to you this morning that there were a couple of disciples here, and there were just a few of many, it seems, that were committed to serving Jesus Christ in whatever he asked them to do. Now, imagine that. These guys aren't even named in the scripture. We just know that they were followers of Christ. They happened to be there, and Jesus said, hey, I need you to go and do something for me. And at the drop of a hat, they were obedient to Jesus. They trusted him, and they followed him. Man, how many of us would love to be those kind of disciples? Names, names aren't mentioned. No fame and glory like the other 12 uh, disciples and later 11 apostles. But, but just guys, that, guys and men and women that just decided, you know what? I love Jesus. I'm going to follow him. I'm going to do whatever he asks. I love their example here. But Jesus here is exercising Uh, The gifts of the Holy Spirit, speaking with supernatural foreknowledge. That's part of his divine attributes of omniscience. Jesus being God in the flesh. And he knows what's going to happen. And he tells him, hey, you guys are going to go into the city. And you're going to find a guy carrying a pitcher of water. Now, we might all look at that and just go, well, what's the big deal? There's probably hundreds of guys carrying pitchers of water. But that was not the case. If you do a contextual study of the culture in those days, you will find that men did not normally carry pitchers of water. In fact, if a man had any liquid at all, it was usually wine, and it was carried in a wineskin. It was the women that were uh, tasked with that duty of bringing water, and they would do so with pitchers. And that was the culture. So to see a man carrying a pitcher of water would have been a clear anomaly, would stick out, making it easy for his disciples to discern that sign. Now, of course, it shouldn't be a surprise to any of us that the two disciples went into the city and they found everything just as Jesus said. And yet, we are surprised. Because so often, we have little faith We find ourselves being surprised whenever things work out just like God says they will. 
don't we? <laughs> now, if we're honest with ourselves, many of us have, have this uh, lack of faith in ourselves. I can't tell you how many times I've gone over old prayer journals. Yes, I do keep a little prayer journal, guys. I know it might seem a little girly, but I do, all right? I write down some of my prayers. And I'll tell you what, it's been one of the most faith-building exercises I've ever done as a Christian man. As I look back from time to time in those journals and I see amazing amounts of God's answers to prayer. I mean, sometimes there's so many answers to prayer, I forget to thank God for them. And I, I go, oh, wow, I didn't realize God answered this prayer. He's been working and doing things exactly the way I've been asking and praying for so long. And I didn't even realize it. And, yet, and, and here I am, I'm surprised about that. I think the Lord looks at us and goes, come on, guys. By now you ought to get it. You ought to get it. I'm at work here. I'm doing things. And as we pray, he moves, he works. So Mark, the writer of this gospel, he's letting us know something here that's important. I want you to catch it. And it's in your study guide, and that is that Jesus Christ is clearly divine. Because he's exercising the quality of omniscience, which is an attribute possessed only by God. That quality of omniscience, what it means is that God knows everything that will happen, everything that could happen, and everything that would happen in any given situation all the time. Just stop for a minute and think about that. <laughs> that is a very deep truth about God. And it applies to Jesus Christ, who is God in human flesh. Think about that for a second. Jesus, not, not right now, he's, he's chosen to give up that divine, uh, those, some of those divine attributes. And yet not completely, because we see him using the, the, exercising omniscience here. But think about this. God, the God that we worship this morning knows everything. He, there's nothing that he can be taught. None of you has any knowledge that you can teach God anything. Remember Job kind of got the, the lesson handed to him there as he was uh, questioning God and his sovereignty and why he did things the way he did. And God showed up in a whirlwind and he said, who are you, man? <laughs> Were you there when I laid the foundations of the earth? Were you there when I taught the Leviathan how to swim and all of those amazing creatures? And Job was like, uh, no, <laughs> that, I wasn't there. And he was humbled in that presence. Well, God, who knows everything, he can't be taught anything. He knows it all. Hey, that's, that's our God. And in Mark's gospel, he reminds us here that Jesus is indeed God in the flesh, who knows all things. And the point here is, is that this is not catching Jesus off guard. His death, his resurrection. He's letting his readers know that Jesus knew about this all along. He knows that this is going to happen. It doesn't change that it's going to be hard for him. But he knows that this is coming. We continue in verse 17, reading, In the evening he came with the twelve. And now as they sat and ate, Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you who eats with me will betray me. And they began to be sorrowful and to say to him one by one, Is it I? And, said, and another said, is it I? Now, the way that this reads in the original Greek is not that they were just saying, is it I? But, but rather it infers that it was a negative assertion. That what they were really saying here, if we were to, to, to translate it very literally right out of the Greek, is that 
Surely it is not I. That's what they were kind of saying. They were basically saying, even Judas was saying this, surely not I. Even Judas included in this group saying this. Verse 20. He answered and said to them, it is one of the twelve who dips with me in the dish. Now that's interesting right there. Think about this for a second. The Passover meal in those days is believed, uh, especially a meal that was you know, in an intimate setting in an upper room like this one would have been, was probably served around a U-shaped table with the guest of honor, the one that was hosting the feast, in this case Jesus, there at the apex of the U. And, and, and from John's gospel, we know that, the, the, that John was on his right because he leaned his head back on the breast of Jesus as they were uh, sharing that fellowship after the meal. But there on his left would have been the, get, the other guest of honor, and, and, and this one, we believe, was Judas, sitting right there to the left hand of Jesus Christ. Jesus, in his love for Judas, putting him there on his left, because that would have, that's where he would have dipped his bread into the, the dish there, right in front of them. It was kind of a paste that was uh, meant to resemble the mortar that they used to build bricks in Egypt. It all dates back to the Passover uh, that... that the, the Passover feast and the reason for celebrating it. So, so Judas would have been the guy right there next to the Lord. Think about that for a minute. Verse 21, the Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had never been born. What an eerie feeling this moment must have been for Jesus Christ. What a heartbreaking moment this was for Jesus. See, he wasn't cursing Judas by saying it would have been better if you'd have never been born. But rather, what he's saying here when he says this is that, hey, in spite of all my love for you, Judas, what you're about to do, I can't keep you from doing it. It would have been better if you just wouldn't have been born. Jesus is expressing heartfelt sorrow here for what is about to happen. We need to know that Jesus Christ sorrows over the lost. Jesus Christ has a heart of sorrow for those that are perishing. It is here in this scripture that we find some very complicated and very mysterious truths that need to be brought out and discussed at this moment. So I'm going to get a little bit theological on you, but that's okay because this theology session is designed so that we might praise God more, that we might realize the depth of his greatness, and that we might open our hearts to him in worship and in praise. Now, no doubt if you're thinking about this passage, as many have, including myself, you have questions in your mind. You might ask that question, you know, did Judas have to betray Jesus? Did he really have a choice in this matter, or is this something that was really kind of foreordained by God to do? And, and then, you know, why is Jesus, you know, sorrowing over something that had to happen? And, and why did he have to be the one that was going to betray the Christ and be doomed to judgment forever? Well, there's, there's quite a few answers to that. That's a, like, as I said, this is a complicated issue in the scripture. But I'd like to address it by uh, uh, just giving you guys three basic truths that you can file away and chew on. They're in your study guide this morning. But the first one is, is that we need to remember that foreknowledge... God's foreknowledge, which is the attribute of his omniscience, is not equal to foreordination. 
Okay? Let me say that one more time. Foreknowledge is not equal to foreordination. Now, this would make God the author of sin if it were equal. If foreknowledge and foreordination were equal, then God would be the author of sin. Now, I'm not saying that foreordination does not exist. Okay? I'm merely saying that it is not synonymous with foreknowledge. We all know that God foreordained that his son, Jesus Christ, would die for the sins of the whole world. We know that. But foreknowledge is not connected to the cause of an event. It is merely the knowledge of what will happen. Now, if I might put it to you in a little bit of an illustration, and I'm, I remind you that all earthly illustrations at this point are going to be a little bit imperfect. But let's suggest that you were standing on top of a mountain. And from your vantage point on top of that mountain, you saw a car coming down a curvy road at a reckless speed. And you, looking at that car, looked ahead down that road and saw that around a curve, there's a bridge. But that bridge is out. And you, from your vantage point, you have a foreshadowing that this person, because of the speed they're traveling at and the reckless way that they're driving, is probably going over that bridge. Now, when they do go over that bridge, you're not the one that caused them to go over that bridge. Your foreknowledge of what was going to happen, and, and then when it did happen, it's not connected to causing that event. That's the best illustration I could probably give you of how fore, foreknowledge is not equal to foreordination. Listen, God knows all things in advance. He knows everything that will, could, or would happen in any given situation. So he supernaturally knew Judas would betray Jesus. However, we should not think that Judas betrayed Jesus because God forced him to do so. You see, God cannot be the author of evil actions. God cannot foreordain evil because that would make him responsible for evil. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. But right now, this brings us to the second truth principle that I want to point out to you this morning. And that is that God's foreknowledge is not incompatible with human freedom. And we talked a little bit about this while we studied the book of, he, uh, of Peter. And we talked about how we can look at God's sovereignty and man's responsibility as two tracks of a railroad. And they run parallel to each other throughout Scripture. There's no denying that both of them are present in the Scriptures. Now, where do they intersect? Well, we don't know that. We just must see them as two railroad tracks that go down that line. It's beyond our comprehension to understand it completely. But we do know this. The foreknowledge of God is not incompatible with human responsibility or freedom. Let me try to explain. Again, God does not cause or determine what each human individual will do when it comes to their, uh, their part of human responsibility. Now, nothing in the foreknowledge of God denies the necessity of human responsibility to choose. Let me say that one more time. There is nothing in the foreknowledge of God that denies the necessity of human responsibility to choose. But this is also true. Nothing in the responsibility of human choice detracts from or changes the sovereign plan of God. We need to mention at this point that in regards to God's divine will, we will see that it can be broken into two different parts. We have what is known as the directive will of God. The directive will of God is when humans 
obey what God commands. They align themselves with God's plan through righteousness. That's the directive will of God. But there is also the permissive will of God. And that is what happens when humans choose that which is self-serving, that which is wrong, that which is not godly, putting themselves before God's directive and therefore committing something that is evil, less than good. Now, God is able, the scriptures tell us, to use all things together for good, for those who love him and are the called according to his purpose. That's Romans 8 and verse 28 and 29. Those are amazing scriptures. So God is not the author of evil. But if he's not the author of evil, then who is? Now listen, this is where we're forced to admit that it is our own human freedom which is to blame for the problem of evil and suffering in our fallen world. Listen, because sin entered into the world at the fall, at the very beginning, with Adam and Eve, evil and suffering entered into the world at that moment. And that is where so many things go, uh, you know, not according to God's directive will. And that's why today we have sin and death in our world. Those actions of sin perpetuate through the generations, creating more and more difficulty and suffering and harm as, as, as they go along. But listen, God knew that that was going to happen. He foreknew that. And he foreordained that his son Jesus Christ would come to this earth to die on the cross as a sacrifice for all of that sin. To bring hope into a fallen world. To bring eternal life to those that would trust in his name. So while God knew that Judas would betray Christ, Judas was still acting as a free moral agent who chose to do something evil because of his own love for money. Lastly, I would mention that God's immutability, that's his unchanging character, his unchangeableness, is proof That Judas had opportunity for salvation. And why do I bring this up? Because I want you to know that it's not as if Judas did not have the opportunities that every human being has to receive the gift of salvation. And I'll only touch on this point briefly this morning, but I think we need to understand that God is unchanging. And because of this, we know that Judas also was given every opportunity to repent, to believe the gospel even though the scriptures indicate to us that he did not do that. No, the Bible tells us very clearly that God is love. God is love. It tells us that he is slow to anger, and he is full of compassion and mercy. The Bible tells us that he is also righteous and holy at the same time as he is loving and slow to anger and gracious and compassionate. The Bible also tells us in James chapter 1 and verse 17 that he is good, not having any shadow of turning. There's absolutely no ill will in God's nature towards human beings. That's what that verse means, James 1.17. I, I should know that verse because it was engraved in my very first wedding ring. Yes, I had a wedding ring at one time. It was gold, white gold. And 
engraved into the inside of that wedding ring was the, wor- was the words James 1.17. And it was a reminder to me, not because I'm good, <laughs> but because the Lord is good. And there's no shadow of turning, and my, and my wife wanted to put that in there. Well, that first ring was lost in the ocean in Costa Rica. You know, I was out there kayaking in a double kayak with my wife. And I jumped into the water, and somehow that ring slipped over my knuckle, and it disappeared. And I came up for air, and I said, Rebecca, I, I just lost my ring. And she grabbed the paddle, and she slapped the water, and she said, you better get down there and find it. So, man, I just, I didn't want to get hit by that oar, you know, I was like, okay. <laughs> I'm looking around, you know, there's just rocks and coral and crabs and stuff, you know. No ring. Couldn't find that thing. But you know what? Even though that was an evil act on my part, the Lord was able to use that instance for good in my life because it made me realize how much that ring meant to my wife. How much our marriage meant to her and that ring on my finger meant to her. See, I just thought she'd be like, oh, man, what a bummer. But she's like, you better get back down there and find it, you know. Taught me a lesson that day. After losing two more rings in the ocean in Costa Rica, I finally got it tattooed on my finger. And that was really painful, reminder. Only a shark can get this one off me, you know. But listen, everything that God does is always rooted in or extends from personal, his personal attributes of goodness, love, mercy, and holiness. See, the Bible gives us numerous examples of God's love and mercy. But there are also examples of when his period of grace runs out and the period of judgment begins. Because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, we can be assured that Judas also was exposed to the same opportunity to believe, to receive God's grace, but he chose to harden his heart, and when he did that, God eventually sealed him in his decision and brought judgment. So while it was ultimately part of God's sovereign plan for Jesus to be betrayed, and and he knew that Judas was going to be that guy, It was not God who tempted Judas to actually do it. It was Satan who showed up and tempted him. And it was the worldly love of money that Judas had in his heart that influenced him. And it was Judas' flesh himself that bears the final responsibility for what he did. Listen, James 1 verse 13 through 15 says this. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. And then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Shows us there that that although Jesus knew it was going to happen, Judas was still exercising his own moral responsibility as he chose to betray him. I bring all of this up because I believe it serves as a warning for us. For all of you that are here today and have ears to hear, this is an opportunity for all of us once again to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. You see, the good news of Jesus Christ is the power of God unto salvation. You see, I can share this with you today, but it is your responsibility 
before God to act upon the truth of what I am saying, what God's word says. It is in the cross of Jesus Christ that the unchanging nature of God is fully understood and fulfilled. You see, how can God be holy and just and at the same time loving and merciful? We see the answer to that in the cross. You see, the holiness of God, the, just, the justice of God is satisfied at the event of Jesus' death on the cross. Because there, the sin of the entire human race is judged. Your sin, my sin, past, present, and future, all judged there on the cross of Jesus Christ. His holiness is satisfied. And now, for all who see that cross and Jesus Christ as God's answer and salvation for their own sin. God has granted that person forgiveness through the blood of Jesus Christ, which is shed for us in our place. We trust in Him. God grants us righteousness of Christ. But for those who see the cross and reject God's truth, they reject His goodness. And while they're in this period of grace, listen, they will come to a moment when they find that His grace is runs out, when his grace ends, so to speak, and his judgment begins. How do you know when you have reached that moment? Listen, there are many that struggle with this, and I know that for a period of time in my own Christian walk, I struggled with this question. How do I know that I'm saved, Lord? What if I'm just deceiving myself? But listen, the very fact that I was asking that question was a source of comfort to me. As I spoke with a pastor and he said, listen, if you were, were not concerned about this, then, then, you know, I would be concerned. But because you have that concern and you desire to know and you're, you're trying to seek this out, that's a sign that the Holy Spirit is working in your life. He's working in your heart. But I believe that as long as you are alive, God is extending his grace to you. That as long as you are alive, God is extending his grace to you. There is no sin that you have committed that has taken you past the point where God can no longer forgive you. As long as you are alive, you have the grace of God being extended to you. And his goodness, his love, his mercy is calling you and leading you to repentance. But the moment that you die, if you have not already done so, you will step into the, the period of God's judgment. The Bible is very clear on that. Now, for the believer, we don't step into judgment for sin when we die. We know that God takes our soul and he takes us to be with him. And there we will receive a judgment, but it will be for the works that we did as believers. What we did for Jesus Christ. There's an old saying, uh, only one life I have to live and that will soon be passed. Only what I've done for Christ will last Okay, so that, that idea that one day we will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and he will uh, reward us based on what we have done out of our lifetimes here for him. Okay, now that is, that is for believers. The unbeliever, the one who has rejected God all of their life and said, I don't want God, I reject the truth of God, I deny it, I want nothing to do with it. That period of grace ends when you breathe your last breath and step into eternity and stand before your maker 
And as you have rejected the Lord, the Bible tells us that God will give you over to your own desire to be separated from him. And, and, and there, the, the Bible talks about hell, the eternal punishment, the eternal judgment for those that have rejected God's free gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. The second way that you can know that you're facing the judgment of God in your life is if Jesus Christ returns physically. If Jesus Christ returns physically to this earth, he comes not in grace and mercy and love as he came in his first advent, but rather he comes to judge the nations. The Bible talks about that in Matthew chapter 25. The third way I believe that you know that you're facing the judgment of God in your life, and I really wouldn't say that this is judgment because it's not punitive in nature, but rather corrective, but would be that God will communicate to you. Okay, and what do I mean by this? Well, in the Old Testament, we see that God sent prophets to warn the people that God's judgment was coming. Listen, I believe that in our lives as Christians, because God loves us, he sees you as a son and a daughter, he can send people into your life to speak warning to you. But God himself, through the Holy Spirit, can communicate with us that, hey, if we don't turn this ship around, we're heading for some discipline. Because God loves us too much to let us destroy ourselves. And he loves us in a way that is disciplinary. He corrects us so that we might turn and be saved. Now, I've experienced this firsthand in my own life. I've experienced a time where I I believe that the Lord was uh, uh, disciplining me as his son. And and I say one time. There's many times. There are many, many times. But one time in particular where I was physically ill and the Holy Spirit was communicating to me that this was brought on because of a, a direction that I was heading in. And that I would not, I was, I was just holding on to my sin, man. Not repentant. And I was determined to keep going in it. And the, Lord's, the Lord punished me as a son. And so I believe that God will communicate it to us at times that, hey, this is discipline. Not punitive, but corrective. I'm, I'm turning you around. <clears throat> Let's move on and let's finish up our lesson for today in verse 22. We're going to read through verse 25. These are the last verses we're covering this morning. It says that as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, gave it to them and said, take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. Assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Let's pause here this morning. Jesus here institutes something very important. This is what we call in the church the Lord's Supper or communion. The Eucharist. It is an ordinance of the church, meaning that it is something that we believe Jesus orders us to do. Did you catch that, church? (laughs) This is a directive from Jesus Christ himself, our commander-in-chief, so to speak, giving every Christian believer the order to participate in his supper as a way of remembering him until the day that he comes, or until the day that he takes us to celebrate with us. And then in his kingdom here on the earth, we'll be celebrating it with him Multiple times. But listen, this is an ordinance. The other ordinance of the church is baptism, in case you were wondering. 
which if you've never done, you will need to do that at some point because it's an action that shows how you, that, that you have decided to follow Jesus Christ. And listen, if you're a Christian here today and you've never been baptized and you're wondering, well, how do I do that? Hey, talk to one of our, the pastors, myself, Greg, Drew, and let us know that you would like to be baptized. We have a baptismal here at the church. We would love to schedule that and do it. And if you're like, no, baptize me now, I'll break out a water bottle. I got no qualms with doing it that way either. We'll just go out to the parking lot and just praise the Lord, man. <laughs> baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Hey, it's an ordinance. And who am I to deny somebody from wanting to follow after Jesus Christ and, and to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ? It's a wonderful thing. Listen, sometimes I think we get too hung up on traditions. <laughs> we get a little too hung up on those kinds of things. But we need to realize, listen, Jesus kept it simple. He said, the Lord's Supper, that's my directive for you. Baptism, I want you to do that. Aside from that, love me with all your heart, mind, and soul. And do whatever you want. In other words, as you're loving Jesus, as he's the desire of your heart, he's going to make sure that those desires of your heart are his desires. And he's going to direct you in the way that you should go. Now, something I want you to see about the Lord's Supper this morning is that Jesus gives the bread first to his disciples, telling us that it represents his body. Please understand that this is not saying the bread is literally the flesh of Jesus Christ. The Catholic Church does teach that the body, uh, uh, that the bread actually becomes the physical body of Jesus Christ as you partake of it. Uh, but that's not what Jesus is saying here. He's not saying that it becomes literally his flesh. It, it, rather, it represents his body, which was broken for us as sinners. The bread symbolizes this. Listen, listen to this that Jesus is the spiritual nourishment upon which a sinner may feed and have eternal life. Did you hear that this morning? It's the spiritual nourishment upon which a sinner may feed and have eternal life. So one of my favorite verses in the Psalms is Psalm 37 and verse 3, which says this. It says, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate or feed on his faithfulness. That's the New King James Version. I love that verse. My, my son, it was actually pretty funny, for Christmas this year, he, uh, you know, he, I saw, well, first of all, I saw him, you know, doing some wood carving in the, gra- in the shop, and uh, he had his pocket knife out and had a couple of boards, and I, I could tell he was wanting to make something special for us for Christmas, and, uh, you know, he had written out this one thing, it said, I love you for my wife, you know, I love you, mom, and it was carved into a piece of wood, and he was, he came in and he goes, hey, dad, what's your favorite Bible verse? You know, and I'm like, oh, man, I could really slaughter him with this one. You know, just give him a big old long verse and just break his heart, you know. But, no, I, I, so I was like, okay, what's a short one? Psalm 37.3, you know, this one right here. Dwell in the, la- dwell in the land and, and feed on his faithfulness. So I gave him that verse, and he went out to dutifully to try to carve that into a piece of wood. And, uh, you know, he gave up on it, actually. And on Christmas Day, I found out because he ended up just writing in cursive on a piece of paper and put it in a frame and gave it to me, you know, the verse. And. But, but you know what, I put that verse right next to my, my sink in my bathroom, and I see it every day, and it's just a great reminder to me. But that's what this is talking about. As we eat the bread of the Lord's Supper, we're coming to the Lord, and we're saying, Lord, this is your faithfulness to me. This is eternal life, and I'm partaking of it because it means something to me. Your death means everything to me. 
and I'm partaking of it. I want to feed on your faithfulness. I want to have eternal life. Now, it doesn't impart eternal life to us. As I said, it just represents your heart's desire. That, that spirit-filled desire of his children to have communion with the Lord, to be with him. Then there's the cup, which simply represents his blood, which was shed to take away our sins. And his blood is the basis for forgiveness. It's the basis for those who are trusting in Christ to be a part of God's new covenant of salvation by grace. To put it simply, the bread is Christ's presence. It's just simply the presence of Christ. That's what it represents. And the cup is Christ's forgiveness and cleansing from sin. I find it interesting that Jesus chose to put the cup or put the bread before the cup. I would probably have put the cup first, saying, listen, before you can take the bread, which is God's presence or Jesus' presence, you need to be cleansed and forgiven with the cup that represents his blood. Before his presence can enter us, we need to be clean. That's my logic. But Jesus doesn't establish it that way at all, does he? He doesn't follow that pattern. He gave the bread first. And followed it with the cup. And I believe that there's a lesson in that for all of us here today. In so doing, Jesus essentially says to you and to me this morning, Hey, I will come into you just as you are. I came to be with you. I love you. And then I will cleanse you with my blood. As we close today, I would venture to say that most of us have the mistaken idea that we need to clean up our life first. That we got to clean ourselves up and look presentable and come to the Lord and say, see God, see what you're getting? I look real nice on the outside. I'm giving myself to you, Lord. But the Lord is saying, listen, just come as you are. You don't got to get cleaned up for me. I'll take care of that. I love you the way that you are. Now, he doesn't keep us in the state of where we are because we realize his grace is actually the means to which we are transformed more and more into his image. But he does want us to come just as we are. Jesus says to you and to me, take the bread first. In other words, let me come in first. Then take the cup. I'll clean you up. We don't do it on our own. It's his work in us. Our work is to believe. He does the rest. The Apostle Paul says this in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. He says, my old self, and I'm reading from the New Living Translation. He says, my old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. But Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's what the Christian life is all about. It's not about cleaning ourselves up and presenting ourselves as something worthy. It's about trusting in him to do all of that for us. Yeah, we have to put our part in. We can't just be lazy, apathetic Christians that think that, you know, God's going to miraculously cure our sinful habits. 
No, we need to put our part in as well. We need to pursue the Lord and we need to uh, cooperate with the work of the Holy Spirit. But it all starts by trusting that he's the one who's going to do it. I challenge you today, are you trusting in him? Oh, how we need to understand, church, that we cannot clean ourselves up first. What we need to receive him into our lives, and he does the rest. Pray with me.